All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, at this time, as we come together in prayer, we focus upon our nation. This weekend, we celebrate the 240th birthday, going back to the acceptance of the, the approval of the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776. It has been your blessing that has prospered this nation. It has been the positive volition down through the last two centuries that have provided us a foundation of thought that has enabled us to take that which you have provided potentially for those on this continent and to develop it in remarkable ways, in ways that are exceptional throughout the history of the world. And much of that wealth that has been produced has been used to propagate your word, to send missionaries throughout the world, to build churches, to print Bibles and theological material, to build Bible colleges and seminaries and training schools. And much of that wealth has been used to expand the gospel. Father, that these days are waning. We, we know and we recognize as we look around us that, that a massive shift occurred in the last hundred years and the foundation is shifting. The people no longer wish to build upon that which was laid and they wish for another foundation. And the result is a cultural malaise, a spiritual poverty, a moral bankruptcy. And, Father, we recognize that this impacts each of us in personal ways as well as in ways involved in our professional lives and in our family lives. Father, we recognize as believers in Jesus Christ that the only hope that we have, the ultimate hope, is a turn turning back to you. And that will only come as a result of people who respond to the gospel. But how can they hear unless someone is preaching and proclaiming the gospel? And therein lies part of our responsibility, is to continue to be faithful witnesses, to continue to uh, proclaim the truth of your word, to be uh, a light shining on a hill, that we might be used by you to uh, proclaim the truth of your word, and by your grace there will be those who turn, who change, and only on that basis can we ever see anything like what has happened in the past. That is not a pipe dream. We understand that this has happened before and it will happen again. We pray that we might see it in our lives. Father, we recognize that for this nation to be blessed when they are going so quickly down the path of self-destruction and arrogance, the path of uh, just fulfilling every sinful, selfish desire, uh, it is not in your plan to bless such rebellion. Father, we pray that we might be faithful, that we might be still focused upon you and filled with the hope that only you can provide as we witness the things that are going on around us. But, Father, we pray that there will be a turning that in this election year, even though it appears that the candidates do not fill us with great enthusiasm, nevertheless, we know that you can, you can work even through those who are 
uh, unbelievers, even through those who are rebellious, to change their hearts, to change their thinking, and to use them to bring glory to yourself. And, Father, we pray that there will be an internal spiritual transformation in this nation, for only on that basis can we ever hope to have real prosperity again. And, Father, we pray that we might be part of that process and we may have the privilege and the uh, honor to be part of your plan and to witness you work in such a way in this nation and in this world. But no matter what the focus in the future may be, we pray that we might be steadfast, we might be faithful, and we might be filled with hope as we focus upon the ultimate goal of glorifying you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this weekend we're celebrating the 240th anniversary of our nation's birthday. The Declaration of Independence was originally approved on July the 2nd. And the next two days, July 3rd and 4th, were spent debating some of the wording and some of the changing. The final form was approved on July the 4th. Interestingly enough, John Adams, who was one of the signers and on the uh, main committee, was uh, uh, never did like, never did think we should celebrate on July 4th. He thought we should celebrate on July 2nd. It wasn't signed for another month. Until the first, or until actually the second of August, and even then there were five that did not sign it. There were two that never did sign it. There was one who recanted, but only because he was captured by the British several months later, and he was put into jail and tortured and starved and beaten. And only after several months did he recant. He was released, and when he got back to his home uh, state of New Jersey, he. Uh, restated his or retook his oath of loyalty uh, to the state of New Jersey. Celebrating the, the Independence Day on July the 4th is a significant thing that we do. It's important. It is a reminder to us of why this nation was founded on who the people were who founded this nation and what their vision was. Because only in understanding that vision, only in understanding their framework, can we understand what it means to be an American. We've lost that concept in recent decades. We focus more on the melting pot and secondary ideas than on the defining ideas and values and standards that are embodied in our founding documents. Belief in those values is what made America great. Belief in those values is what made America the beacon of light to the world. It is the implementation of those values based on those biblical Judeo-Christian beliefs that made this a place for people to escape enslavement and poverty and oppression and tyranny. But without that foundation of Judeo-Christian ethics and value and the core spiritual realities that are embodied in in the Bible, there cannot be a place of refuge. Because without that foundation, there is no real understanding of freedom and liberty. And so it is vital for us to reflect upon our foundation year in and year out. We need to know how it is that we came to be a people, a unique people, a unique nation among the nations of the world and to be reminded that it was ultimately God's providential grace that raised up this nation, and only when we understand the past can we begin to understand where we need to go and what we need to do as we reflect upon our future. If God grants us a future, it will only be if we return to the roots of our foundation. 
The idea of celebrating certain days in remembrance of past events goes back to the early days of the human race. But as Christians, when we look at the Bible, we see that there are numerous days that are set aside by God for the purpose of remembrance. We can think of other things when certain key events happen in the history of, of Israel, where God had them erect a cairn of stones or a monument or something that would be a reminder. So subsequent generations would come along and they would be teaching opportunities to teach that horrid, horrible, horrible subject to the next generation called history and bore generation after generation with the tales of the past. But see, history is the most important thing that we can, we can study. History is the foundation for everything else. If you're studying engineering, you have to understand the history of the technology and the mathematics and everything that brought us from the past to the present. If you're studying literature, you have to understand the history of literature. If you're studying law, you have to understand the history of law. Things just didn't pop up today. If you're studying economics, you have to understand the history of economics. History, in my opinion, is the glue that holds everything together. And once we get away from history and understanding history, then everything will fall apart. And this is exactly what has happened in our culture in the last hundred years as the progressives, the revisionists, have sought to denigrate history, change history, rewrite history. Uh, It changes the culture, and it changes people. Now we have a generation of of, of people who are uh, relatively ignorant of our history, and they have no idea even why we... Celebrate, and they think we celebrate the 4th of July. We do not celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate Independence Day, which took place on the 4th of July. But the 4th of July is just a date like, like any other date. When we look at the Bible, it's interesting that the first command to remember something occurs in Exodus chapter 13 in connection with the birthday of the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 3. So we see the importance of history in the Bible. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. This is related to Passover, Pesach. Passover is the independence day of Israel as they came out from the tyranny and the slavery in Egypt. And there are a lot of interesting parallels that we can draw between uh, the observance of Passover and Pesach in the history of Israel and the way in which we observe Independence Day. But the important thing is it is a reminder every year as they observe this, what happens around the Seder table. They rehearse what happened. They go through the story. They ask questions. They engage the children so that they learn what God did in their past and how the existence of their nation was unique and distinct in that they were God's special chosen people with whom God entered into a special covenant. And there's never has been before, and there never will be again, a nation like Israel. And it is in the telling of that story year after year that God designed a way to, to strengthen that foundation. But when they got away from it, when it became just something that was rote, when it became something that no longer was connected to the spiritual uh, realities, understanding the reality of God, and they, instead of worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they turned to idols. When they 
uh, turned away from an understanding of God's grace in uh, bestowing his favor upon them. Then they entered into a slavery to their sin nature that ultimately resulted in slavery to oppressing powers. By the time we get to the first century, when Jesus is in this confrontation that we're studying in Matthew, what we find is that that much like today, the people observe Passover, and this is Passover week in, in Matthew 21, leading up to Passover. The people are observing it, but they don't understand why. Most of them have lost that understanding of the true spiritual realities, much like in this nation uh, today. So the Bible emphasizes the importance of remembrance. This is the importance of history. Someone said this caught my attention some years ago. It's built off of an original quote from Winston Churchill. The original quote was, A nation that forgets its, its past destroys its future. It's been expanded to include past, present, and future. A nation that forgets its history impoverishes the present and destroys its future. That's an important principle. When we don't know history, when we don't know why we do what we do or where things came from, then we can't appreciate what's going on today. And a nation that doesn't appreciate its past will destroy its future. Winston Churchill also said, study history, study history. In history lies all the secrets of statecraft. Now, what he meant by statecraft is what we talk about in terms of politics and law and what makes a nation work and what makes makes a nation prosperous and what destroys a nation. All of that comes from studying history. Sir Edmund Burke, who was a uh, British politician at the time of the American War for Independence and who was a political philosopher, member of the House of Commons, wrote, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And we see this happen again and again and again. One problem for many of us is that we have an understanding of where America has been in its past. We have an appreciation for some of the uh, more prosperous times. We have an appreciation for times when this nation flourished, both in terms of its economic power as well as its military power. We remember a time when there were genuine spiritual revivals in this nation. And when, if you made the statement, this is what the Bible says, it carried weight, it carried authority, and it was respected because that was what the Bible said. And you didn't need to say anything else. We remember a time when there was a greater economic stability. We remember a time when there was greater prosperity. We remember a time when the government valued the nuclear family so that if you were parents with two children, you hardly paid any taxes, and because of the prosperity of the nation, only one parent had to work. And the, uh, the, the lifestyle, the economic lifestyle of a family with one breadwinner in the late 50s and early 60s could only be matched by the late 70s with two working adults who were working 60 to 70 hours a week each. And by then, they were also paying a much more burdensome tax rate. The government made an enemy out of the family, which is the very core to sustain a culture. It fragmented the family, fragmented the culture. The fragmentation of the culture was one, one result. There are a lot of things that we can look at in the world today. We can watch the news each night, get up each morning. Somebody recently said, I start reading my Bible every morning instead of reading Drudge Report and Breitbart and looking at the news, and life was so much better. We get up and we focus on what is happening in our culture, and those of us who have perspective, wisdom, and understanding see where it's going, and we see how horrible it is. 
our culture has turned into a cesspool. And unless there is something that changes, it's only going to get worse. In a current editorial, former Congressman Tom Tancredo from uh, Colorado raises the question, why do we continue to celebrate Independence Day when we no longer cherish independence? Maybe that thought has occurred to some of you. It certainly occurred to me as I've thought about our nation and our past, and I see the direction we're going, sometimes it's hard for me to think and be very patriotic because I cannot support the policies of this present government. But we have to stop and reflect on a much broader scale than just what's going on today. He raises some of the issues we're all familiar with. He says, Our schools no longer teach our children the meaning of the Declaration of Independence. Our elected officials no longer protect our sovereignty. Our courts do not recognize or even comprehend God-given unalienable rights for which the patriots of 1776 pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Our professors, priests, and futurists are so enamored of global citizenship they see individual rights as an anachronism. Multiculturalism is not an idea to be debated. It's the new orthodoxy to be obeyed or else. We can add to his questions other observations. Our political leadership has become corrupt. On the one hand, we have a political family that has sold out to the highest bidder. One presidential candidate is, for the first time, being investigated for federal criminal actions. Her honesty is ranked lower by most people than almost any candidate in history. Many believe she committed treason in her failures as Secretary of State to act to protect our embassy in Benghazi in Libya. Her opponent has his own set of moral and character flaws. He is crude, he's crass, he jumps uh, jump, jumps off without thinking about things and says things without thinking about things. He has many odd and unusual ideas, and many people react to him. We have congressional leaders that are so addicted to their personal power and the wealth that they have accumulated serving our nation that with few exceptions they can no longer be trusted to serve the people only their own self-interests. I read a question about the Clintons the other day. How can, a, how can two people who've dedicated their lives to serve the country be worth $200 million? How can that happen? A local congressman, whose name I won't mention, went from, has tripled his net worth in his last three terms in Congress. He didn't have much to begin with. Now he's wealthy, has worth over a million dollars. How does that happen? It is a corruption that is eating away and destroying this nation. Our political and bureaucratic leaders seek to radically transform the cultural, moral, and spiritual foundations of the nations. And to a large degree, over the last hundred years, the progressives have been very successful. We have very few conservatives or believers in the history of this nation or the exceptionalism of the United States teaching in any college or university in this country. As a result, our young people are being brainwashed into progressivism and a totally false view of reality when we send them off to college. One of the first things that is attacked if they have a faith in the Bible and Jesus Christ is that faith. They are singled out, they are belittled, they are ridiculed, and they are disrespected for being Christians. And so in order to uh, save some self-respect, they give up what they have been taught by their parents. We often ask the question, what can we do? What can we done? Is this, is this irreversible? And if we put our focus on the tempests and the waves of history and circumstances like Peter did when he was walking on the water, then we're going to sink just like he did. There is hope. There is hope. There's always hope. In the last 
20 years or so, it's been popular to do these man-on-the-street interviews. Somebody goes out with a microphone. I've thought about doing this here. Um, go out and just start asking questions like, well, it's celebrating Independence Day. What are we independent from? I saw one the other day. The guy said, well, I got a divorce 20 years ago. I've been in, that was my Independence Day. Others talk about um, independence from parents or uh, they just uh, get to do whatever they want to do and they think of, of um, celebrating the 4th of July as just an opportunity to go eat hot dogs, have a party, not go to work and watch fireworks. When you watch these, uh, these interviews, it makes the United States look like a nation of ignorant fools. But we know that there are many, many people who are still educated, who understand the issues and understand history, and they are working hard. They are working behind the scenes. They are working in front of the cameras to try to change things and to make a difference. It's sad that the first category are composed of people who vote. It's amazing that some of them even know how to work the machines. But when we focus on the garbage of our modern self-indulgent and morally bankrupt and politically corrupt nation, we're speeding down a highway to political slavery and putting ourselves under tyranny again. It's easy to get depressed. But we have to remember that our hope is in God. Our hope is in his providential grace and that nations rise and nations fall according to his will and according to his plan. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 7.14 that is often quoted out of context where uh, God says to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name repent, then I will bless them. That has to do with Israel. The best passage is in Jeremiah 18.6 and 7 rather. The instant God is speaking, he says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. There's always hope, but that hope is based on turning to God. God further said in verse 9, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. The issue is a nation, a culture's orientation to God. We were blessed in the founding of this country because we had a, a man, a leader, who understood the providence of God and the grace of God. He saw some pretty dark days in those early days of the Revolutionary War. And this nation has seen many dark days. There were times in the early years of World War II when it was not certain that the Allies would win. There were times in the, tw- in the late 20s and especially the 30s in the time of the Great Depression when people did not think that they would ever regain uh, prosperity in this nation. And people were unemployed. People lacked food. They l- lacked clothing. They might have... Uh, I remember my grandparents, my grandfather had one suit for, for many, many years. That was it. Wore to church on Sunday. All of their clothes would fit into a wardrobe that was no more than two feet wide. And we look at what we have today. We have so much more. There were dark days during World War I. There was a terrible time of the war between the states when it wasn't sure if this nation would be united or not. There were times, many times, between the 1790s and up until our present time when this country went into a deep spiritual and moral decline when the leaders, Christian leaders in this nation, in the late 1790s, they were extremely discouraged with the morality of the colonies. And then we had the Second Great Awakening, which started in New England in places like Yale and Harvard 
and other universities, and it started among college students there. In the South, it started in churches. In the, in the West, in, which was Tennessee at that time, it started in various uh, country revivals. And that in, had bad points to it, but also uh, some good points to it. During the time of the American War for Independence, not all of the colonists supported the cause of independence. In fact, I read this last week that there were times when they estimate that fewer than 3% of the colonists actively supported the cause for independence. But they were tenacious, and they were vocal, and they did not give up, and they were passionate about their cause because they believed in the righteousness and the justice of the cause. And many of them were, if not most of them, were motivated by deeply embedded Judeo-Christian values. One of those who kept people's focus on the future was George Washington. He told his men, we should never despair. Our situation before has been unpromising and has changed for the better, so I trust it will again. If new difficulties arise, we must only put forth new exertions and proportion our efforts to the exigency of the times. Never give up. On July 3rd, 241 years ago, July 3rd, 1775, George Washington was given command of the newly formed Continental Army. The Continental Congress had selected him to organize the farmers and local militia to develop an army that would be capable of defeating the world's greatest military power. One of his first orders to his men, to his officers, was this. Every officer and man will endeavor so as to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Notice how he is calling the people to live to the highest moral and ethical standard, not to reduce everything to the lowest common denominator, not affirming everybody's sinful inclinations. He recognized that that Christian character and duty would be at the core of the survival of the nation. He said it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. One thing that we have lost in our secular education is the realization that the founding fathers, that's a sexist statement, has been for 20 years. You can, you're only supposed to call them founders. But they were male. They were the fathers of our nation. We should be proud of that. It doesn't matter what color they were. It doesn't matter what gender they were. What matters is their ideas, their values. Because what they gave us was a nation that provided freedom, liberty, prosperity, a nation that became the greatest nation in the history of the world and one of the greatest uh, exporters of biblical Christianity throughout the world, a place where everybody wanted to come and no one wanted to flee, but it was grounded in a spiritual reality. And that reality didn't begin in the 1700s. It was rooted in the... Uh, Puritan political thought that was developed in the 1600s in England, and that in turn had a tradition going back in British common law, going back to the Magna Carta, and even before that, to the dooms of Alfred the Great. That's the Saxon word for laws. Some people may think that laws are dooms, but... The dooms of Alfred the Great were built upon the Old Testament. That's part of the foundation of British law. In fact, Alfred the Great was a scholar. He knew Greek and he knew Hebrew and he translated the Psalms into the vernacular of, of, of the British language at the time. So that's the foundation. It is a Judeo-Christian foundation. Without that foundation, 
there cannot and will not be a future. And this was recognized by other leaders. Samuel Adams, often thought of by, from the 60s generation, is just a revolutionary since the 90s as somebody who brewed beer. But he was referred to in his generation as the father of the American Revolution. He was a member of the Sons of Liberty. He was instrumental in the Boston Tea Party. After the establishment of the United States, he served as a lieutenant governor of Massachusetts and governor of Massachusetts. In his will, he wrote, I recommend my soul to that almighty being who gave it, and my body I commit to the dust, relying upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon for all my sins. That is a very clear Christian testimony. Regarding the 4th of July, he said, we have this day restore, we, we have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. Not the king across the ocean, but the sovereign God of heaven. We have restored, we have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. Regarding the people, he said, it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brushfires of freedom in the minds of men. We are what appears to many a small congregation, but there are hundreds if not thousands of small congregations like this, and we can all be part of this and set brushfires of freedom in the minds of men. We do not need to look at what they did not have many in number in 1776, but they were passionate and they were involved and they made a difference. Sam's cousin John is more well known because he was later vice president and president of the United States. He said the safety and prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depend on the protection and the blessing of Almighty God. See, we have a saying around here, and we say that God controls history and that we are to trust in God and not in men. But some people take that to mean that we don't do anything. We just fold our hands and maybe we pray. But that's not how it was understood at the time of the American Revolution. They trusted in God, but they kept their powder dry and sharpened their swords. They got involved, but they understood that what they did would not have lasting impact apart from God, and their ultimate trust was in God. He said, the ble it's, we depend on the protection, the blessing of Almighty God, and the national acknowledgement of this truth is an indispensable duty which the people owe to him. Without that, the culture will implode. He said about the Declaration that it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. When we read the Declaration of Independence, we read about the Creator. It's grounded in a Creator-creature distinction. It's grounded in biblical truth. That's why it's being attacked by the progressives. They don't like the Constitution. They don't like the Declaration because they recognize they're grounded in biblical Christianity. John Adams also said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now, I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. It's common today to find people challenge and are skeptical about the role of Christianity in the founding of the nation. You will always also find many who said, no, 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 it was just, you'll find many Christians who say this. It was all influenced by, by um, uh, rationalism of the day. It was influenced by the Enlightenment. It, Christianity had very little to do with it. Well, back in the 80s, there was a study done by Dr. Donald Lutz at the University of Houston, who's a political science professor there, and it was a 10-year project in which they analyzed over 15,000 political documents from 1760 to 1805. They looked at 3,154 citations. What this purpose was was to determine what, what did they quote the most. 
what writings influenced the founding fathers the most? Where did they get their ideas? What they discovered was that the most often quoted source for political ideas was the Bible. The old, mostly the Old Testament, over one-third of all of the direct quotes came from the Bible. So much for this so-called separation of church and state. The next most quoted source that was quoted one-fourth as frequently as the Bible was from John Locke. Now, John Locke was a great political philosopher, but he was reared in a Puritan home, and a lot of the quotes that came from John, John Locke were paraphrases that came from biblical verses. So even though he's the second most frequently quoted author, his ideas came from the Bible as well. And fourth, another 60% of all references came from authors whose original source goes back to the Bible. So the number one influence on the thinking of the founding fathers these these documents that they studied were their diaries, their personal letters, their speeches, all of these different things. The primary source is the Judeo-Christian heritage of the of the Bible. Notice most of what they quoted came from the Old Testament, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, some of the prophets. At the time of the War for Independence, the vast majority of those living in the United States were Christian. What they looked to for guidance on law, government, politics, was the Old Testament. This is why we must affirm that the institutions and government of the United States of America is firmly grounded on a Judeo-Christian worldview and that it was designed to function on that basis and not on a secular basis. This is why John Adams said that it could only be sustained by a moral Christian people. You take that out of the equation, it will collapse. So there is hope. There's an action plan. We need to pray. The most important thing that we can focus on is prayer. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Let me suggest that when the government is out of control, and it is, then we can no longer act and go as if everything is nice and hunky-dory. We can't be consumed with the day-to-day events of our lives and our families and enjoy our work, because if we don't get involved now, then we will come under tyranny very, very soon. It is now that we have to act. We have to remember to keep our priorities state. We trust in God. We don't trust in man. Jeremiah 17.5 says that, that says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. We don't trust in man. We don't trust in political parties. We trust in God but we still work. You can pray all day long that God will provide for your retirement, but you also need to be putting money aside for your retirement. There's the work that God does and the responsibilities that we have. Psalm 118, 8 and 9, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Our confidence is in the Lord. Third, we need to witness. We need to evangelize those around us. We need to grow spiritually ourselves so we are strong in the faith, and we need to challenge others to do so. We cannot be complacent. We need to be passionate about our faith, and we need to be lighting fires in the minds of men for freedom. Fourth, We need to get involved in the political process from the precinct level all the way up. We need to know who our precinct leaders are. We need to know who uh, our state representatives and senators are. We need to know who our federal representatives and senators are. We need to call them. We need to let our voice be heard because they say, I have talked to so many who say, so very, very few. They may get five or six calls on one issue. 
So if, if our whole con- congregation called in on one issue, that could sway the whole vote just because very few people actually talk to their, their congressional representatives. So we need to get involved in the political process, and that does not contradict the second point. Getting involved politically is not political activism in a negative way. That's not marching in the streets and causing riots and burning things down. It is part of our civic responsibility as citizens in the United States. We need to educate ourselves on the issues so that we can talk with people about these issues. I was at dinner last night. One of the first things that came up was global warming. One of the individuals at dinner was, was liberal and had just gotten back from a cruise to the area of Norway and Iceland and spent 10 days with an editor of, of uh, Science, Ma- Science Magazine and had just imbibed at the fountain of liberal global, man-made global warming. And, you know, just had to sit there and talk through things and begin a what will be a long-term conversation. But that's what we need to do. We need to be engaged in this way. And six, we need to teach our ch- children and our grandchildren and anybody who will learn about the past and about what made America great. Now, as we wrap up, I want to t- direct our attention to this parable in Matthew. It's a short parable. And it has some significant application. Okay, Matthew 21, 28. A little background. This is the parable of the two sons. And in this parable, Jesus is judging the elders and the chief priests. There are certain similarities that we have between uh, Israel and the United States as background to this. Israel's Independence Day occurred originally on the 14th of Nisan in 1447 B.C. The U.S. Independence Day occurred July 4th, 1776. Both were grounded in the gracious provision of God's providential interference in history. Both are celebrated annually to remember what God did, to remember the circumstances of the founding. But negatively... Though there are some among the Jews and some among the Americans that still remember and believe in the founding spiritual principles, most do not. Most in both nations have forgotten the real source of their freedom and their liberty. The same was true in the first century in Israel. They celebrated Passover, but the religious leaders had forgotten the grace basis on which it was founded. In Israel, they had succumbed to physical idolatry, and were taken out of the land in 586 B.C., but in the Second Temple period, they made an idol out of their law. In the U.S. today, we've made an idol out of our emotional fetishes and our sinful proclivities, giving everybody the freedom to sin as much as they want. Israel rejected God, And in Matthew 21 through 24, Jesus indicts the nation, passes judgment, and announces the sentence. In the United States, the signs of judgment are all around us, yet we're still here. God still has a plan for us. He's not finished yet. We still have the freedom to proclaim the gospel. We have the freedom to send out missionaries. We have the freedom, and we still support Israel and the Jewish people. There's still hope. And we have to focus upon that. But the application of this section is important. Jesus addresses the chief priests and scribes in a second parable, first parable of three. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answers and says, I will not, but afterward he regretted it and went. Now, in the, in the setup of this, we see an emphasis on the grace of God. It's not apparent in English. It says he had two sons. They're called Tekna, not Wea, but Tekna. They're children. They're beloved children. It shows the, uh, the, the focus here is that, that God still viewed these two sons as of value to him and that he loved them. What Jesus is pointing out here through these two two sons is the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He does this 
through contrasting the sons. He tells the first one, go work today, and that first son says, I won't. He's going to be rebellious. This is a picture of sinners who don't care about God. But then as they think about it, they change their mind, and they go. They obey. The word there, it's important to point it out, it's translated regretted, is the word metamelamai. Now, there are two words in Greek that are important, metamelamai and metanoeo. Metanoeo usually means to change your mind. It's more of a thought word, whereas metamelamai is more of an emotionally laden word. But sometimes it's really clear that the person who just emotionally regrets something, that doesn't last. It's like you wake up in the morning, your clothes are tight, and you say, i got to go on a diet, and then by noon you're eating a big dessert. Okay? You regretted it in the morning, but it's just emotional. It doesn't last and no change of behavior. But here we have a change. So sometimes metamelamai also involves a real change. The son regrets saying, no, I'm not going to do it, and he goes and he does it. Then the father goes to the second son and says um, to go and do likewise, and he says, I go, but he doesn't go. So the issue is which one's really being obedient to the father. And the religious leaders say the first one. Now the first one who starts off being rebellious and then changes pictures the sinners, the unrighteous, that were looked down upon by the religious leaders, the tax collectors and and the prostitutes, the immoral ones. And Jesus said, see, what they did was they, they did the will of the Father. They believed. And so Jesus says, they're going to get into heaven, and you're not. Because they did the will of the Father. And then in verse 32, he says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness. We've already seen that John the Baptist was mentioned in the preceding challenge to Jesus' authority in verses 23 to 27. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. See, that's the point here, is belief in the salvific promise of God as it was at that particular time. They did not believe him. It wasn't related to their behavior. It was their belief in the message. So the tax collectors and harlots believed him. See, the issue here is on that word believe. They believed. The religious leaders did not believe. And Jesus says, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent. That's how it is in the New King James. But it's that same word, metamelamai. You didn't do what the first son did. You didn't change your mind and then do the right thing. You didn't regret it. You didn't believe. But the issues believe because that's the issue in the gospel. That's the issue in our eternal destiny. And that's the issue in what makes a difference in a nation. That's Jeremiah 18, 6 and following. That if a nation believes in God and follows him, then God will relent of judgment. But if they do not, then God will bring the judgment. And that's the focal point of this short parable, is that Jesus is holding out a hope. He's, he's got a subtle offer of the opportunity to change your mind and obey God and to believe. And that hope is always there for us. Let me just close with a couple of verses that remind us of the importance of hope. We can all get down and discouraged over what is happening around us for any reason, personal, circumstances, whatever. The same thing happened to the psalmist. Twice, once in Psalm 42 and once in Psalm 43, the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, my soul? You ever struggle with depression, being down, not being too excited? Why are you cast down, my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? What's the solution? Go get a prescription. No. Hope in God. Put your focus on God who's in control. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are of the day. It doesn't matter what those waves are that are coming up around Peter when he's walking on the water. Get your eyes off of the circumstances, whatever they are, health, finances, whatever, Put your focus on God. He's in control and he loves us. 
and he's going to provide for us no matter what happens in those external circumstances. Hope in God, I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Because when we're down, it's on our face. He's going to lift us up, and the joy of the Lord will be visible just in our attitude. Psalm 43, 5, Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Twice the Holy Spirit has this recorded. Psalm 135, 130 verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. That's the focal point, because his word is his thinking. We focus on the Lord. That's our hope. Psalm 146, 5, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord your God. It's grounded in the promise of God. That's why we have to be occupied with the Scripture and focused upon him. And then the passage that is the ultimate hope passage in, this, in the Bible. This is Lamentations 3.20 and following. The circumstance is Jeremiah's lost everything. Jerusalem is in smoldering embers and the temple has been destroyed. And most of his generation has been slaughtered by the Babylonians and they're buried in the valley of Hinnom. Others escaped to Egypt and took him with them. Others were taken as captives to Babylon. And he remembers this. We all have those memories, those sorrows, those griefs. He says, my soul remembers and sinks within me. We all have those circumstances. But if we dwell on that focus, therein lies the path of self-destruction. And what Jeremiah says, it is through the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. We're still alive. We still, God still has a plan for our life. Even if this country collapses and we go under tyranny, God has a plan for our life. That's what happened with Jeremiah, with those, those survivors of the Babylonian invasion. They're taken off and we have the great stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and, and Abednego. And we have the, the stories of Jeremiah and others who still live to serve the Lord in captivity. Through the Lord's mercies were not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He says, the Lord is my portion. Having thought through this rationale, he says, therefore I hope in him. Get your eyes off the circumstance. Focus on responsibility. Love the Lord. Hope in him. And then he says again, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The focus is hope. When we think it through biblically, it doesn't matter what the Democrats are doing. It doesn't matter what the Republicans are doing. It doesn't matter what the idiots in California are doing or the idiots in Austin are doing. What matters is that God's in control and we're here to serve him And our hope is built on him, and that's it, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful we have lived in a nation that prized freedom and liberty. And we live on the edges of the residuals of that generation, and we're thankful for them. We're thankful for the lessons that they exemplify for us and remind us that that it is only on the basis of your word that we can have real freedom and experience genuine liberty. Father, we pray for this nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray that you would raise up men and women who understand the truth and can proclaim it, can clarify it, and can lead this nation in the direction it needs to in order to get out of the malaise, the collapse, the garbage pile that it's in. Father, we pray that we might be clear in our lives to present the gospel to those around us, that we might understand that we are here to be a witness for you, and the other details are secondary and tertiary. But we are here to witness to your grace, to your glory, and to your provision, and the fact that you sustain us no matter what the circumstances may be. 
that we need to be a light to those around us and a source of hope to those who are in our periphery because we point to you as the source of hope. Now, Father, we pray for any who might be listening today who've never trusted in Christ as Savior that they would have a clear understanding that there is only one way, and that is to trust in Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, the one who died for our sins, and that that we're saved only because we possess his righteousness and are justified, not by anything that we do, not by our works of righteousness. Father, we pray that you would make the gospel clear to them and that they would respond in faith alone in Christ alone. And for the rest of us, that we might be encouraged and strengthened and that we might not let the details, the things discourage us as we see the, the collapse of our pagan culture, but that we might recognize that it just gives us opportunities to proclaim the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.